Jeremy, good afternoon. Absolutely fantastic to have you on this episode of Stories That Matter. Thanks for having me. I think we're going to have some fun. Um, I suspect this is going to be a good one. Anything could happen. (laughs) And anything normally does. um, And you're right. But it's a joy. uh, And it's a joy for reasons that will become very evident to our listeners uh, during the course of this podcast. Um, I'm expecting a complete masterclass on storytelling, uh, given your glittering CV um, and the work that you do and have done. Uh, And we'll talk a lot about that during the course of the uh, of the time together. Um, but I'm going to start, if I may, with some stats. And I'm going to start with 3,000 research scientists, a $6 billion research budget, more patents registered than any other company in the last 26 years, and six Nobel Prizes. Wow, and, that sounds impressive. And for those of you that uh, that won't know where those numbers come from, They come from and are irrelevant to um, the place that Jeremy currently works, IBM. But I wanted to start um, with those stats because I'd love you to start this podcast with your story of how you came to IBM because I think it's brilliant. I think it's heartwarming. I think it's truly um, special. And and I think it would be a magnificent way for us to kick things off. Wow. Wow. Okay, we're going there, are we? We are. 100% <laughs> going there. <laughs> uh, it's a good job I've got some wine. <laughs> so listen, I mean, I've, I, I'm have i a marketer that doesn't really work in marketing anymore. But I mean, I, I, I kind of, we can get into all of that and what it means. But I, I grew up, had a marketing agency, you know, Facebook, went to Adobe, Salesforce. Yeah. I never wanted to join IBM. Uh, and with all respect to my esteemed colleagues, you know, I was thinking back when I was being approached by them many years ago, um, many, seven. <laughs> um, I'm, sorry, I, I'm not sure. What, I'm with Mark Benioff, right? I'm, it, he's blue. I've got Dreamforce. I've got Stevie Wonder singing, you know, you are the Dreamforce of my life. You're meeting Bono and Metallica and doing keynotes with Will I Am. I'm like, why would I leave that? Salesforce is amazing, right? It was growing 32% quarter on quarter or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so... I just looked at IBM and the perception that I had just because of the circles that I was in was just, they've been around a while. You know, the way that Seth Godin sometimes talks about these long established businesses, you know, established in, you know, 1912 looks like it's a liability. Um, So I was kind of had this really weird perception. So I was just like, no, 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 I kept turning them down, kept turning them down. And they were going through some M&A. IBM wanted to build a marketing cloud. So it looked very relevant to what I'd done. But it was like, no, I'm, I'm really super happy. But then, you know, at the same time, we're trying to get pregnant. And that in itself was an event, <laughs> not just the event, but there was lots of stuff. It was difficult, right? A lot of people on the show will resonate. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard. And it, it's difficult trying to build a family. And we were, we eventually got pregnant. And then you find out very quickly you've got 0% chance of survival. It doesn't happen very often. Mm. And um, I'm pausing because I'm trying to choose my words carefully yeah. so that the rest of our conversations doesn't um, turn me into a puddle. So you start thinking about, well, how is that? The NHS never usually says that. You normally got a few percent. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. like you get when you get the odds of bad things happen, it's like yeah, yeah, a yeah. few percent. This was like, no. They're going to die. You just don't know when. And you're a research project. So you kind of end up in this space of, 
first of all, emotionally, how do you deal with that? You People start giving you advice like don't build nurseries and don't give them a name. It's like twin one and twin two. We found out we're having twins. And um, because they're not going to – so your research project. So we, we then going through just many scans in multiple hospitals, the NHS. Oh, my goodness. I just love the NHS so much. And, and we were going through – all of these different hospitals, we had Brompton, we were looking at Denmark Hill Fetal Medical Research Center, scans at St. Thomas's, Chelsea, Westminster, absolutely all over the place. And I'm still at Salesforce, right? And anyway, we, we told that they're not going to survive past, well, it looks like, you know, 20 weeks. So there's a there's a pioneering surgery by a guy who's an absolute rock star, Cuprus Nicolades. There's even a show about it on Netflix called Surgeon's Cut. And he's invented this process where you basically go when you have twins and yeah. they're sharing the same placenta because these are identical twins. Yeah. The, the laser is basically cutting the placenta because you've got one twin that's super tiny. So when that one doesn't make it, you're forced to give birth to the other one really early. And we're talking, you know, the size of your palm, yeah, you know. So he's pioneered this whole thing. It's absolutely phenomenal what he's done. Um, but we're having this and they still, they survive because we basically had the surgery to get rid of one to try and save the life of the other. And and there was all sorts of stuff that happened in hospital and his audiences because it's a research hospital and there was a even a stadium, it was a theatre, it was crazy. Um, anyway, still alive. We're going back and having scans every few days and you're looking at umbilical cord fluids, you know, blood in the bladder, you're looking at fluids around the brain, super tiny. You know when you have kids... And, and you're looking at the percentiles of when you get your scan. Yeah, and yeah, was, yeah. I, do. I remember it well. And you're really, really nervous because it's like, well, what percentile is yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, it looks like it minus two, yeah. a little bit small. <laughs> is that going to be okay? You get to minus five and you're really nervous, yeah. right? Minus 10, things start to get bad. We were minus 47. So wow. they were basically wow. doing the math to figure out the kid's not going to make it. Mm. So you have to have this thing, this pioneering surgery to – anyway, survived. Survived the surgery, 20 weeks, 24, 25. No one's ever survived to 34 weeks. 34 weeks, they're both still alive. So now the conversations, they're not going to survive birth. And they survived birth. But they needed to stay in hospital a long time because they're so small because, of course, everything that could go wrong now need heart surgery. And they're so tiny. Not going to survive heart surgery because they're far too small. Um, the only reason I tell you all of this stuff, because I'll never forget looking at what was twin two. I am getting choked up now thinking about it. Looking at the, the little girl with all of these wires coming out of her and the cannulas. We even had to cover up her head because the cannulas were coming out of her head. They ran out of veins. because And I'm wow. talking to doctors and we've got data scientists and all sorts of these amazing people. And it's, where does all that data go? What's going, you know, and they're like, what a ridiculous question, given what's going on. But I'm trying to distance myself emotionally yeah, from what's going of on. Of course, of course. And, and they started to describe what marketers will be very familiar with, which is basically a single view of a customer. You've got 10,000 data points a second coming off a NICU bed, right, an yeah. intensive care bed. Um, I'm working at Salesforce speaking to CMOs about Twitter and all of the different APIs and all the connecting, all the apps, all the platforms coming in. And we're looking at how marketing clouds, 10 million data points a second, next best action, and you know how that single view is going to help people yeah. sell more stuff and customer journeys. Yeah. They were describing almost exactly the same thing. I couldn't believe it. And when 
we said, well, you know, where's it going? And they said, oh, it's really complicated. I'm like, look, if there's one thing I understand, <laughs> data in cloud and where it, where it goes. Yeah. And, uh, and the conversation was still, they're not going to make it. But I'm, I'm, um, I'm saying for the next family that comes over, you know, how are we going to make sure that they have better odds of survival because yeah. it's a research project? And um, and they said we're working on a project with IBM, yeah. and there's an AI. Uh, it's called Watson, yeah. which is helping NHS and, and some of the research take so much of that data and try and figure out what to do next. Anyway, the the moral of the story, and I can you can poke me more if you need more details, but it looks like they shouldn't have survived at any point. And now I have six year old beautiful twin girls, Petra and Matilda. Petra means rock because yeah. she really is. Yeah. Um, Matilda means strength in battle, which you know yeah. she was a little fighter that brilliant. we had the surgery. Absolutely brilliant. So they defied all the odds. And it was AI and technology played this massive part in doing something that's never happened before. So I go back after I find out this at IBM, go back to the recruiter. And the story goes that I'm like, look, if that is true, if this old company that I thought, you know, are they still relevant? Is Watson just a, you know, <coughs> I heard about Jeopardy and Deep Blue. Is it yeah, real? Yeah, yeah. But if IBM is really doing that, saving the life of my girls, you know, I will stand on any stage and speak to as many CXOs as we need and we'll go, you know, I'll, I'll join this afternoon. I was like, no question, that's the company I want to work for. There's a saying that Simon Sinek um, said to me, it might even be in his TED Talk. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to name drop. But he said, golden business. <laughs> sorry, that's pretty lame. No, this context, right? Because the golden business is not to sell to people who need what you have to work with people who believe what you believe. Yeah. And I'm looking at this company that believes what I believe, that's yeah. trying to use technology to make the world work better. Yeah. Loads of it's behind the scenes. It might be attached to climate change and sustainable development goals and all sorts of other really big, complicated problems. I'm like, I want to work for that company. Yeah. It's a, it's, and that was, that was, yeah, many years ago. Uh, that is an incredible story. And I so appreciate you sharing it i know it's a personal story with i'm sure um a huge amount of emotional um kind of resonance well, the thing is, Gary, i mean you, you you get this and you think about agency life and you think about the people that you speak to yeah. and, and what it is that's trying to drive different decisions and behaviors yeah we spend far too much time in business asking questions like what keeps you up at night yeah as if there's a level of anxiety, fear, and stress where I can come in and solve a problem and I'm going to be able to sell you some stuff. Yeah. Yet when you look at what, like the whys, what really drives the company, belief systems, you know, values-driven organizations, the stuff that is in the DNA of amazing brands. Yeah. Um, it's the complete opposite. It's all about what gets you out of bed in the morning. Totally right. You know, what inspires you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. I think for all of us, that's a challenge. You know, work with a company that inspires you. Yeah. Gets you out of bed every day. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, I, I just thank you for telling the story because, you know, it's a personal one. But I, I, and I, I make no apology for asking you to do that because I want to talk about storytelling. I want to talk about the power of stories. And I want to talk about the thing that I know you are in part hugely interested in and 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 for those of you who don't know jeremy you should 
get onto his LinkedIn literally now, um, uh, or certainly after this podcast, and just look at um, look at the work that he does. Look at the visual storytelling that he does. Uh, check out the website uh, he has um, because all of it is phenomenal. And uh, I remember I came across you because you were uh, being interviewed by a friend of mine, and I then quickly had a look at your work, and uh, I was so inspired and blown away by it. Um, I want to talk to you about later on about how you have time, frankly, to do everything you do. I don't know whether you, I I figure you found a way of creating a nine day week. I don't know, but uh, at the end, we might talk about that and and, and your, 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 you know, the key to you doing that. But tell me, talk to me about storytelling and talk to me generally, talk to us about why, why you became so fascinated in it. What is it that drives you to? consistently talk about it do it live it use it breathe it um yeah let, let, let's get into that if we can all right and, and you can poke me and drive yeah. me wherever you want to go here because i'm i'm thinking of all the marketers that inspired me you know when i was in my corporate career and crossing paths with the gary vaynerchuk's and the scott galloway's and the ritson's and the yeah. you know the marketing society and academy and the amazing work that they do yeah it's like that's that's my world yeah but yeah it just frustrated the life out of me that a lot of marketers don't get the respect that they deserve marketing Mm. budgets are the first things to get cut yeah you start looking at the power of storytelling which is what most of the best marketers in the business world you know the best storytellers live in the marketing teams yeah and um why is that that they don't have the respect they don't have the credibility cmos you know low levels of trust really low tenures they're not around for long enough but yet they're the best storytellers Mm. and the more i started to dig into it i kept coming back to you know things like preference and consideration and awareness and all the usual kind of metrics of which there's strong methodologies behind a lot of it but also there's many cases where a lot of these campaigns and measurements don't really hold that much weight outside of the marketing department. So I started going on this mission, which really started at Facebook with valuing audiences for people like Rovio and Zynga. You know, you're spending half a million dollars a day on Facebook ads. You've got to justify the value of that audience. You have Heineken coming in that says, you know, should we build out our Facebook page for the Champions League or should we put all our money on TV? I started looking at, I think where we've been going wrong is the economic value of a story. Now, this is where it starts to get really tricky because you get into, you know, not everything that matters can be measured, but you can't manage it, you can't measure it, all of that. And this is really the the really interesting part of storytelling because storytelling within its own right, and we can talk about structure if we want to get into that, but the way that business looks at it is it's really just a load of stuff that happened. It's not an actual story. It, it, we might have some ROI and there might be a client challenge and these things happened and this was the outcome, right? But there's no transformation. There's no real transformation. And then you start looking at the way that those stories are structured, which is really just to help somebody to feel something. Mm. We could talk about neuroscience yeah. and emotions yeah. in a minute. So, an audi- so we, we need to transform an audience. We need them to feel something. In business, we want them to do something. Yeah. And that frustrated me that these stories that are being told are not driving enough action. Mm. I want to be able to tell a story that CFO cares about. Yeah. I want to make sure that the teams that I'm working with, the marketing budget is the last one to get cut. So I went on this mission to yeah. try and reframe storytelling, not as a soft skill, 
which is where it still lives for most people. But as this is a really freaking hard skill. It's only easy when you don't know how to do it. When you see the science of how great presenters, great storytellers, great speech writers, screenwriters, Aaron Sorkin, Obama, we could go deep on any present. Like that's hard. Mm. It's really, really hard. So I built a framework, worked with a lot of psychologists, made sure there was neuroscience to back it up, looked at the psychology of behavior, decision-making in the C-suite, looked at how you could put economic values on stories, and then thought, how can we tell business stories in a totally different way? Now, you've got to learn structure. We need to go into Aristotle. We need yeah. to go into Joe Campbell's Hero's Journey. We need to go into Mark Ritson's world and look at all of our metrics on the MBA pro, you know, all of that. Yeah. You also want to make sure there's enough room for magic. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think of, I used to call CMOs chief magic officers. <laughs> but when you're telling a story, we like it when one plus one equals two in business. It makes sense. Our data is accurate and we're confident. But, you know, a lot of the time, and this is a Bruce Springsteen quote, one plus one equals three. Yeah. When good stuff happens, yeah. when the band gets together, yeah. we've got our structures and our frameworks, we've got our insights in the brand, we've got the team, we've got a creative, you know, application of something that we're going to do for that activation. But then through the best ones, something happens. Yeah. Something magical that you can't explain. Yeah. I just wanted to work to create the environment where magic could happen. Mm. But that will only ever survive if I'm keeping the CFO, the CIO, the COO happy. Yeah. I um, It's interesting. You know, I often talk about the twin pillars of magic and logic. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what you're describing there is the magic of storytelling underpinned with the logic of the difference that storytelling can make to the CFO, particularly in terms of return on investment. And of course, you said something interesting to me the other day when we were chatting pre this podcast, you know, you said, you know, we, we, we have a similar shtick, right? You know, my, my company talks about changing the way people feel through the power of storytelling, because actually, you can only get somebody to do something if they can feel something. But the truth is, there's another stage to that, which you talk about um, massively intelligently, which is, okay, but what do you actually want them to do? What do you want them to do, right? And actually, how are you going to measure that? And and I think that, you know, um, uh, I'd love to, I'd, I'd love to borrow your framework and pitch it to a few i'm only joking actually now let's go back to you know years ago in the facebook days of trying to measure an audience yeah and this is massively oversimplifying um neuroscience but if you was to break it down and look at left brain and right brain which it's really not like that but we'll talk about you know in theory the right brain is the limbic part of our brain it's where emotions come from we talk about the amygdala and the hormones all the stuff that is triggered from decision making really comes from the right part of our brain. I mean, it goes, Kevin Roberts did a thing years ago. Do you remember Love Marks? Yeah, I do. I remember it it very well, yeah. People make decisions with their hearts, they justify it with our heads. He's kind of talking to the right brain activations, that creative part, and then we justify it with our left brain afterwards, our our neocortex, and Simon Sinek did his first book on that. But when I was starting to break all of that down, I was looking at what are the components of a really good story? And I've done this at IBM, actually. We've used some AI tools and measured about 57,000 pieces of content. And I boiled it down to three for the left brain, three for the right brain. 
And whenever I'm coaching people to tell stories, I'm like, look, not in equal measure, but just make sure that your story does at least you know, these six elements in some way, you're going to dial them up and down depending upon the outcome in the audience and the type, but left brain, does it inform, does it educate, does it solve a problem? You know, but we talk data, what keeps me up at night, educate, information, offering stuff I want to sell, numbers, right? But the brain processes that in a very different way. Stories come from, like you said, our right part of our brain, right? Where we inspire we excite and we challenge. So I'm just looking at this little tiny, imagine a trivial pursuit cheese from everybody listening and the little six segments, inform, inspire, educate, entertain, challenge, solve a problem. Any story you should be telling, and we could talk about emotions in a minute of how you do it, but every story needs to have at least some form of logic and emotion. You know, we call it logos, ethos, and pathos in speech writing, left brain, right brain. And it's not rocket science. I could just come back to that because um, you and I share a, a, a passion for a few things outside of storytelling. I, I, I've spent years talking to people about Ikigai. Um, <clears throat> I um, was captivated beyond belief by Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk about oh, why, yeah. why schools kill creativity, which I think is still... The first or second um, as watched TED Talk. by miles by I mean, miles I, by miles I, you know seventeen thousand views a day yeah, still yeah yeah and you know his passing was a uh, a, a huge loss to the world um, um, and uh, I know that you know his daughter and, and 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 the brilliant work that she's doing to continue Sir Ken's legacy but for those people who haven't watched that TED Talk please do it's why schools kill creativity. But it's 22 minutes of just pure genius, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. and, and about, as it says on the tin, why is it that schools end up killing creativity in, in, in you know, young people particularly? And it changed my view of the world of education overnight. But um, apologies for the alarm in the background. Um, the, um, talk to me about that story. You know, what's in it that makes it a brilliant story? Yeah, yeah, I mean, because it, it is interesting, isn't it? When you've got something that by miles is the most watched TED Talk of all time, you want to take notice because if you're a really good storyteller, if you want to be a better one, you just look at who the best of the best are. And, you know, he's clearly one of the best. He's just, I love him and, and miss him a lot. Now, I wasn't involved in, in any of his work, but I've spent a lot of time analyzing his work because he's so good so that I can try and coach a lot of other young folks and he's a lot of business leaders to try and do the same thing. You can watch it for yourself, but what you'll do, if you watch it with a stopwatch and a pen and even try and draw the shape of the emotions that you think you're feeling, it does have a structure. Um, Sir Ken said that he improvised a huge amount of it. It's got one of the best cold opens when he claims that, you know, it was so amazing, it's so good, I'm leaving, I'm gone. Yeah. But if you actually break it down, and maybe, Gary, we can share a picture where I've done this in the show notes for everybody. Yeah, okay. Very simple three-act structure. It almost maps perfectly to Aristotle's poetics, which is used in Broadway. It's used on stage. I think it should be used in boardrooms as well as Broadway. But it's the way that Netflix write. It's the way that a lot of the stuff you learn in film school. So three-act structure. Now, also what he did, this was a talk about educational reform, right? So it's going to be very data-heavy, very research focused on academics, trying to disrupt the school system. 
So you got to have a lot of numbers, right? Yeah. He has almost no numbers. And I think from memory, he only uses two statistics in the entire, I think it's 18 and three quarter uh, minutes. I think that's it. exactly right. Right. So it's, so it's two statistics. But what he also does is a three-act structure, which you could describe as, you know, it could be at one, act two, act three. The way I describe it is excite, disturb, assure. Yeah. So tell me something to excite them, but tell me something to disturb them. Yeah. And now assure me that we could do this and here's a better way, right? And Nancy Duarte does loads of amazing work around this. But when you look at that three-act structure, which is basically the hero's journey, it's, you know, Joseph Campbell's, you know, yeah. hero with a thousand basic stuff you start looking at why was he so good well here's what he did he he shared one quote in each act so basically six minutes six minutes six minutes he made the audience laugh on average every 29 seconds which is amazing right because he's used to speaking to students and he's not a comedian he's got a natural pattern beautiful and conversation use no slides by the way as well yeah. Another big tip to business presenters, don't use slides. It's just going to kill your presentation. And also, instead of doing all that data, he shared seven really small stories. Mm. So I tagged them and then worked out. And I think on average, his stories were two minutes and seven seconds each. Wow. And when you look at attention spans, especially of senior leaders, you know, you're looking somewhere between 75 and 120 seconds for a B2B senior business audience yeah and he just knew that yeah. so two minute story two minute story two minute story yeah. with a laugh and but peaks and troughs here's where the world is but here's where it is at the moment yeah. but here's where it could be <laughs> but at the moment it's all going to shit because <laughs> so, and it was that trough you know um she just carved so beautiful and he's a natural storyteller anyway yeah, so you I, can only watch yeah, this stuff quite and um You've now realized, you've now made me understand why I've watched that TED talk probably 30 times, 35 times in my life and, and, and still love it. But for those of you who've not listened to it or seen it, watched it, please do. Uh, and uh, you, you'll see exactly what Jeremy's talking about. Um, you talked earlier about emotions. I, I'm really interested in your view and your, um, you know, the work you've done and, and, and breaking those emotions down. And I know you talk about you know, being, uh, you know, very clear about the, you know, the eight or nine emotions that you think, you know, matter and the one that everyone mm -hmm. forgets, um, uh, uh, which uh, we could talk about. But talk about that for a minute. I, I mean, I, I found it fascinating because, you know, in our world, um, I, I often now say to our clients when we're trying to present work or we think about the work we're presenting, what emotion do you want this work to evoke? Right. What emotion are, or emotions do you think this work should be evoking? Because it has to evoke some of them. Because if it doesn't, it goes into that vast expanse of content landfill that is filling up every day with the mediocrity that's put out there every second on LinkedIn that nobody reads, nobody cares about, and frankly has been written about a thousand times before. So talk to me about, in my humble opinion, talk to me about um, the, the, the emotions. What an amazing question. What emotion do you want? Yeah, and uh, the way that I write speeches, I spend a lot of time writing speeches for big audiences, and I do a timeline, 
and I write every single script word for word. There's a very specific reason why I do that for timing and structure and three syllable words and, and the way that we analyze the text for the audience. But I'm tying specific words where I hope it's going to trigger a certain emotion at a certain time in the yeah. presentation. Wow. So you start getting into a level of obsession when you want to be really, really good. Right? Yeah. So when you think about the best storytellers in the world, and you can start looking at structure, and that, but you're going to get to a point pretty quickly where you're like, well, I just can't be. I'm not going to be Saken. Mm. I'm not going to be Brené Brown, and I'm not going to be Simon, and, you know, all of these other folks. Yeah. But, you know, there's some structures that you can learn, but all they're doing is this transfer of emotion, which is really all brand and values are all about when we're looking at marketing, it's back to love marks. Yeah. You're looking at this value exchange of emotion. It makes perfect sense that if you want to get really good as a storyteller, knowing that a story's objective is to make the audience feel something, hopefully in business so that they do something, you need to become a student of emotions. Mm -hmm. You have to be. Yeah. Um, now, I'm not saying go and do a psychology degree and go and, you know, but there is a level of you need to understand why and how people behave, yeah. what makes them tick. You're going to learn a little bit about. Um, hormones you might look at how you trigger dopamine which is you know that when we tell an exciting story when we get that release when you want more of something yeah. adhd as maybe some of you have realized already so i have slightly lower levels and you end up sometimes self-medicating some people take pills or that i go cycling but when you're telling really exciting stories levels of dopamine are all over the place and you start getting neil gaiman says you want the audience to think, and then what happened? Mm. It's like the four magic words in storytelling. Yeah. Because, you know, just like chocolate and sex and all the things we want more of, we want dopamine. But how do you do that? Like, how do you trigger that hormone? How do you trigger oxytocin, which builds trust? We talk about pathos, which is the emotional argument, you know, which is where empathy and sympathy and pathetic comes from, these emotional words. Yeah. But still... You're probably sat there now listening to this and still a little bit confused, like, yeah, that sounds really smart, but I still have no idea what to do with any of that. So here's what you do. <laughs> you study the one piece of research that almost everybody rallies around, and it's from a guy called Daniel Goleman. Yeah. He's a rock star. G-O-L-E-M-A-N. Yeah. Emotional Intelligence book from the late 90s. Now, if you were to Google how many emotions are there, you could do it right now and do a Google image search You'll see, gosh, you'll see periodic tables, you'll see color wheels, you'll see thousands of emotions, and you're like, shit, where do I start with all that? There's so many. I just can't make sense of that. Which emotion am I aiming for? That's tough if you're looking at a wheel of 300. But Daniel Goleman um, basically made this case that there's only eight emotions. That's it. Every Everything that we do that drives behavior boils down to eight core emotions. Five of them are survival emotions, and two of them are attachment emotions. Now, there's another one called a potentiator, which we'll come to in a minute. Yeah. So let me just give you some context. If you think that most of the people you work with, the person that's not promoting you, the client that's not buying your stuff, the audience that isn't voting for you because they don't believe in what... We naturally, especially in the West, have a negative mindset. There's two bits of data that might back that up if you want to get into some numbers. Four out of five executives currently feel overwhelmed, underprepared for the challenges their businesses are currently facing. Yeah. As a result, 75% make major decisions with their heart, with their gut, which is a little bit like what 
Kevin Roberts said with Love Marks, yeah. you know, who has to yeah. with the car, buy the holiday, the house, yeah. right? The big stuff. But yeah. MIT is on a project looking at this negative mindset that we have, whereby they estimate we have about 70,000 thoughts a day, probably about 90% of them are the same as yesterday. It's all on automatic cognition. But 80% of our thoughts naturally are negative. Yeah. So you're like, okay, I need to inspire the audience to do something. How do I do that? Well, first of all, we need to understand what these negative emotions are. There's five of them called survival emotions. It's fear, anger, disgust, shame, and sadness, negative emotions. That's usually the default setting. Now you could argue maybe even in climate change a little bit that when people are pissed off and angry, they do stuff. It's not a great motivator in the long term, but negative emotions can trigger action, but mm -hmm. it doesn't usually last that long. Yeah. What we want are the positive emotions. We want to build trust. We talk about being trusted advisors in business. So the two positive emotions are called attachment emotions, which is love and trust or joy and excitement. They're bundled together. Yeah. So I'm speaking to an audience, naturally negative mindset. I want to flip them to a positive mindset, whether I want you to buy my stuff or vote for me or take on my point of view or read my column or whatever it is. I need to flip you from a positive to a negative. How do I do that with emotion? There's only one emotion, according to Daniel Goleman, and I completely believe it and storytellers get it. It's called the potentiator. There's only one emotion that can flip mental states and it's surprise. Yeah, absolutely right. So you look at, and think about it, your favorite movie, your favorite book, your favorite song, the new album that just came out. When you go all the way back, your favorite TED Talk, something surprised you where you were like, oh, hold on a second, stop. Mm. What was that? Yeah. You know, you was in the room when it happened. It reframed it in a way you'd never thought of before. Totally new point of view, new belief system. I'd never, you know, surprise. And it's like, it's the one question that every communicator should ask themselves when they're about to go and meet an audience. How is what I'm about to do going to surprise this audience? Because really what you're saying is I need to inspire them mm. to be on this journey with me so that when I ask them to do something, they're going to do it. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And of course, in every walk of life, in every form of communication, you know, that notion of what am I as a person, brand, team, organization going to do to surprise you hmm. into reframing what you think or feel about me right and I, and I think that you know we one of the questions that I that you know I, I obviously can't um, uh, I obviously don't admit this in front of them but but one of the questions that often makes my heart sink with some of our um, clients is when they ask me you know or they say to me I don't think we can do this because I'm worried about what my colleagues might think of it. And, hmm. I, and I asked them the question, are any of your colleagues in your target market? Um, and, and, and if they're not, then I'm not sure you should be worried about what your colleagues may think of it because uh, your colleagues ain't going to buy what you're selling, you know. But so, I, you know, and I think it's that surprise piece, you know, and I think that, you know, it's interesting. We talk a lot, Jeremy, about internal and external comms, and I think, one of the great gaps, it seems to me, in the world of communications is that people don't tell enough stories to their own colleagues. Organisations don't use the power of storytelling 
to bring what they do to life, why they exist, what their purpose is, and why you know thousands of people should be working for them. And I and I and I think it's a huge gap in the market. I, I think it's it's an area that you know somebody needs to get hold of. You know because that's about also consistently um, allowing your your own people to be surprised by the stories that you tell. It is, and you you make a really good point because the, the, the challenge with colleagues is where most storytelling falls over. And I mean, if we since we're talking about neuroscience a little bit, we've got to be understand how we students of emotions, cognitive bias. Yeah, right. Cognitive bias is everything. Go and study it. Go and do a course. Buy a book as much as you can to try and learn and understand. You want to be a good communicator. Understand cognitive bias. There's many different variations of it, but generally boils down to 18 of them. And they're really interesting to try and know what those biases are because more often than not, the reason your project isn't successful internally or externally is because of a, a bias, yeah. usually an unconscious bias. Yeah. The big one that kills businesses is, sorry, I'm getting passionate now, aren't I? <laughs> That's, you've, good. That's good. That's good. Because I work with you know, 220,000 people. Courtesy bias. Can, can I swear on this? Can I like, we're too you fucking can, polite. Right, we're too polite. Yeah. Courtesy bias kills stories. Yeah. And it kills the best ideas. It kills creativity. We talk about being risk averse and everything else. Sorry for swearing. No, it's all right. Don't worry. That idea that we're too polite to each other. Yeah. Where, you know, oh, I've got a 30-minute meeting and I've CC'd 16 people to be in my meeting and it's te- we've had to reschedule four times. So we've got a seven-point agenda that we must get through in 28 minutes. Yeah. And, and you know item number two is where this is going to fail. Yeah. <laughs> you know You've got gambler's fallacy. <laughs> it's the same thing we've done before, but I'm going to still stick all my chips on red and it's still going to fail. Oh, but this one's going to, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, it's not. yeah, 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 yeah. No. I, I, I think again. I'm totally with you. I, um, Courtesy bias kills it because you say, oh, no, let's get to the bottom of the list. Let's just let everybody else. No, let's not let everybody else have a say. <laughs> let's And let's not be too polite to each other because if we've actually got trust, yeah, and we've got a safe environment yeah. to support each other, and we all believe, and we're on the same team. Yeah. Call each other out, yeah. you know, yeah. and let's not kill some of these bad ideas, mm. and figure out what does our audience really want. Yeah. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, the audience is not persuaded by what you say, but by what they understand. Yeah, really important. Yeah, and I think you know we've been, you know, I've really been reflecting on this with some of my colleagues the last few weeks around. I use the phrase content landfill, right? I think we're all, all guilty sometimes of producing that. You know, communication pollution. It's just more stuff that we don't need. Exactly. It's just more stuff we don't need. It's more content nobody needs, right? Um, you know, communication pollution would, would be the other phrase that we've used, you know, a lot in our company. It's like just more stuff that people just want to write because or produce because they feel they've got to without actually understanding what emotion do you want to provoke what are you trying to get people to feel um you know and so i, I feel as passionate as you about it really and uh, you know i i shudder sometimes at, at the time that you know sometimes sometimes my company wastes on you know what i'm going to call communication pollution despite our best efforts jeremy despite our best efforts can i just come on to talk about something that i just quickly that fascinates me 
you, 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 you say, don't you, that one of the reasons you've been able to develop and build um, such a stellar career is that you lost, you lost the word marketing out of your title. You ceased to be a marketer. I left. I mean, I, I guess we've got to redefine what marketing means or at least establish what the definition of it is. But I'm, I don't work in marketing. I haven't done for a long time. I'm still a marketer, but I'm a marketer in as much as marketers are really just commercial storytellers. You know, I mean, you could argue there's many roles that this falls under, but it, and it's a bit flippant, but we're all storytellers. Our job is to tell stories as fast and as compellingly as possible. Never forget that the audience is the hero. They're the most important part of the story. Marketers get that. Um, so I'm always going to be a marketer, but I live in the middle of a very big consulting team. We've got 158,000 consultants yeah. at IBM. Um, We've got a pretty big marketing team, but proportionally, it's nothing like that. But it's not about how we're trying to build a campaign with a piece of creative to try and have one of these slightly softer metrics, and then we all argue over attribution of kind of what was relevant to the thing, and whether it's yeah. the billboard, whether it's TV, whether it's – and we've got lots of metrics we could argue about all day long and the accuracy yeah. and confidence yeah. we have in them. But – I'm looking at if I can put a value on a story that, you know, somebody who's not in marketing can understand, I know that I'm always I'm always going to have a job. I'm always going to be in the room where it matters. I'm always going to be able to shape the narrative. All I do is go in boardrooms and either whether it's speech writing or building narrative story or a lot of the performance coaching that I do, it's nothing that we haven't been doing in marketing for years. Yeah, yeah It's just... Yeah. So my challenge, and I'm choosing my words carefully because I, I, I'm saying this with, with as much respect as I can, but there's a lot of marketers out there that would have a much greater impact if they got out of their marketing bubble. And if they realized the strength and the skills that they had with a slightly more data-driven approach, you know, and not always the data that they think is the data that they need because that's not necessarily mm. the trigger for the person you need to impress, Um could have a completely different career, could make a much bigger difference. Maybe you're getting some people to do, you know, the right thing for the wrong reasons. You start looking at political strategy. Yeah. You start looking at rhetoric and how you really influence. You look at, like, influencer marketing is just on the law of diffusion of innovation. It's the 3.5% rule of how movements happen, climate change, civil yep. rights, LGBTQ+, yep. women yep. vote, like 3.5% of any given group influences everybody else. Marketers don't often go down that road enough no. because they're confined to the thing. And if we redefine storytelling as this hard skill and we show the actual value it's going to deliver to the business on, on a bottom line, you know, in terms of cash yeah. and money, yeah. and we can attribute properly, you'd have very, very different careers. And also, yeah. again, I'm choosing my words carefully, but you look at the – the top paid CMOs in the world, and I can think of what a lot of their salaries would be, it is nothing like the salary of a really good consultant. And I know consultants yeah. get a bad rep, but yeah. consultants are problem solvers and storytellers, yeah. and they don't have the same ceiling. So I would, you know, there's a way of, yeah. we want to make a lot of money because we want to make a big difference and do good stuff with that money. And sometimes yeah. there's a glass ceiling in marketing that shouldn't be yeah. there. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think there is, and I think, you know, this is, the, I think, the fourth recession now that I've 
I had the privilege of uh, pleasure in the pain of trying to lead an organization through. And uh, it, it's sometimes depressing, um, but equally predictable that I'm having exactly the same conversations now as I was having the, you know, the, the, the fourth time ago, if that's the right phrase, which is marketing's the first budget that we're going to cut. And you're yourself, and, Gary. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, exactly. And, and marketing's the first budget we're going to cut. And despite my best efforts at saying, if you look at the data, and don't believe me, because I know you think I'm an agency hack trying to sell you something, but don't believe me. Look at the data of those brands that invest at times like this and how they come out of the the downturn uh, and don't believe me read people like mark ritson who will tell you it far more articulately than i ever could about the value of being a, you know being courageous and brave and all those things around what you do and how you do it in these times but um those debates go on sadly and uh, sadly we're still at the thick end of them you know but i think um now, as we come to the end of this, I wish we could do forever, um, but I know you've been up um, uh, for, for, for a while today and, uh, and I don't want to keep you too long. But I do want to ask you one thing, um, which is y- you are quite prolif- prolific. You write books. You do more visual stories than I think I've ever met anybody do. Your LinkedIn profile is constantly updated. You tweet. You've got a massive job. You've got two twin girls. Uh, you seem to know more about the world of communication than anyone else on the planet. You seem to be better read on that subject than anybody on the planet, as far as I can work out. Uh, have you communed with God to create the nine-day week and not told anybody about it? Or or have you got a secret source that helps you do all that stuff? <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. There's there's not really – I do have a – of course, I have a process. Um I do. I also have an incredibly amazing understanding wife. Um, I've I've tried to find a way, and and look, I'm super passionate about this, as you can tell. Like right now, this is this is not work. This is fun. I'm I'm going to be doing this for. Fun. I'm reading about this. Is just this is what gets me out of bed. You know, to tell stories that inspire other people to do what inspire them. So together we can change the world. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like work. So there is a level of. Some people might say, oh, I need to switch off. I need some downtime. And and, and my downtime might be reading you know, but a book on, on you know some of this stuff. But here's the thing. Um, there's a few different ways that you can go about it. People talk about 5 a.m. clubs. There's, there's a mindset at the moment that you should really break down your working day into three six-hour blocks and treat it as three days. So actually you do have you know, a 21 day, you can get things done three times fast. I have a really simple view. Um, I don't watch a lot of rubbish, first of all, but but there's some numbers, I think, that might help other people frame this differently for themselves. And, you know, and it's going to be meditation and exercise and eating the right food and vitamins and all that stuff comes into it. But it, it breaks down like this. On average, each of us sleep for about seven and a half hours a day, on average. Um, sleep's the most important thing in a world that we can get in order to be good at what we do. So it's about 7.4 hours. Now, if anyone does the maths on 24 hours and you take off those 7.4 hours, it leaves you with a really interesting number. We're awake for a thousand minutes every day. I love that because I, I mean, my brain likes breaking things yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Look. 
Yeah. I'm not systematic about it, and this isn't going to sound super anally retentive. Like, no. Our days are basically 100 blocks of 10 minutes. That's all it is. We have 100 blocks of 10 minutes every day. And when you look at sometimes there's a, there's a phrase that we use in climate change called truth in 10, how you tell stories in 10 minutes. Tony Robbins has yeah. a whole process about the 10-minute, you know, give thanks, be grateful, visualize, three minutes, three minutes, four minutes. But you're basically opening up each day based upon the prep you did the night before, though, with what am I going to do in the 100 blocks I've got today? How many yeah. blocks am I going to give to Gary? How many blocks am I going to give to mentoring? What about watching a movie, listening to the new Taylor Swift album, getting excited about something else, going for a walk? Am I going to give two of those blocks to masterclass.com where I'm going to learn a new coaching technique from you know a, a top basketball guy or a yeah. hostage negotiator? So I break my day down like that. So I have plenty of time to be creative and play, but you get into a space really quickly where a, you've got tons more energy and you can get up earlier, but also Tim Ferriss wrote his whole four hour work week around a similar mindset of how you massively maximize your day where it looks like you're getting tons more out of it than the average person. And you're not, you just, you're more intelligent with how you spend your time. You need to have lots of time that you can waste. So don't structure it all because then it'll then it'll be horrible. It feels just regimented. John Lennon said time you enjoy wasting is not wasted. So make sure you've got lots yep. of fun, right? Yeah. And and that's all I do. I just look at every one of my days as a hundred blocks of ten minutes and I want to have some fun. I want to build a business and in some small way I want to try and change the world. Well, I'm going to end it there as, 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 as gutted as I am to do so. But what I am going to say to you is that has been, uh, first of all, I'm hugely grateful that you've given me five or six of your 10 minute blocks today. Um, uh, it's been a joy uh, for everybody listening to this. I am absolutely certain that they will have uh, managed to glean so many useful um, tips, insights, ideas, uh, uh, thoughts uh, I, I know I have and uh, it, it's been um, hugely hugely enjoyable as well and uh, I um, I wish you all the best for the next uh, the next few months and the rest of your year may you tell better and greater stories more often my friend and uh, I will say to anybody listening uh, now that we are at the end of this podcast if you've got two 10-minute blocks spare immediately after this, check Jeremy out on LinkedIn. Particularly have a look at some of the visual stories that he does and some of the videos because uh, they are brilliant, they're instructive, and frankly, they're better than any masterclass.com uh, uh, film that you could watch. So, um, Jeremy, thanks very much. I'm so grateful. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on, Gary, and thanks, everybody, for your attention as well, for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, now go and tell stories that matter. <laughs>